Welcome to episode 181 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, um, we're doing a news roundup uh, on this episode. Uh, we have a couple of uh, items that will be released later in the week, or at least one uh, later in the week. We'll have to do that as a separate episode uh, uh, because uh, we want to get the news roundup out today. So this will be a shortish uh, uh, episode. Uh, uh, we're joined today, I'm really pleased to say, by Nick Weaver, who's a senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley, a lecturer in the computer science department at UC Berkeley, uh, or Cal, as I guess we're calling it again these days. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, he's been a lawfare contributor uh, and a, uh, uh, a great person at the edge of technology and uh, policy for cybersecurity. So welcome, Nick. Thank you very much. And uh, Stephen Heifetz, uh, formerly with DOJ, DHS, and the CIA, and now co-chair of our International Regulatory and Compliance Practice. Uh, and uh, welcome, uh, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker. Right? Uh, you know all uh, uh, this about me. You've heard it 180 times before, so I will not say it again. Uh, uh, but I am once again hosting the uh, Cyber Law Podcast. Uh, let's jump right into the issue that seems to be a continuing story. It's it dominated September cybersecurity stuff and looks um, to dominate parts of October as well. This is, of course, the Equifax breach. Uh, the CEO, uh, the now-resigned CEO, is testifying, uh, I think, today or tomorrow uh, about what went wrong um, a, and uh, he probably could just say, uh, to save time, I'll testify about what didn't go wrong. Uh, uh, but what I thought was interesting is there are now people saying, uh, you know, this could have been a state-sponsored attack. Uh, and um, I find that interesting and open to debate. Uh, um, what do you think, uh, uh, Nick? Do you think that... Uh, uh, there is, in fact, uh, reason to believe that uh, the uh, there was a state-sponsored. This was a state-sponsored attack. Well, first of all, we should hope that it is, because if so, that's probably the least damaging alternative. Um, because a state sponsor wouldn't dump or sell this data. Well, that's right. The, 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 I, 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 the, the strange. Let, let me let me just uh, expand on that. Uh, it means that. Uh, um, all of the talk about what a disaster this is is probably overblown. Uh, uh, the lawsuits are going to end up with little or no in the, uh, damages uh, uh, because uh, you know the uh, the Chinese are not going to go out and rape and pillage our uh, 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 our, our credit card and our credit balances. Uh, um, so this could could end up making the Equifax breach much less interesting. Yeah. The evidence that it's state-sponsored is kind of murky. That's so, I... so, for example, the exploit itself is remarkably easy to do. It was introduced um, into Metasploit three days before the parties who compromised Equifax compromised Equifax. 
They compromised a whole bunch of servers and then did nothing for three days. That's not the sort of thing that a targeted state-sponsored actor would do. Um, they siphoned off a huge amount of data, and we haven't heard hide nor hair of it since. But if it's criminals, they don't actually need to sell it right away. This is data that, unlike, say, credit cards, doesn't expire. This is still useful for criminal services years from now. And so it could very well be just criminals that are staying quiet. Yeah, we have not seen really great attribution information that would suggest, you know, we 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 can have a pretty good idea who uh who carried out the attack. Yeah. And um the investigation is um on the private side by Mandiant which really should know state-sponsored actors when they see it. Yes. So the fact that they're not saying it uh, raises the question about whether this really was a relatively sophisticated gang of uh, 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 commercial criminals. Right. And the other thing is, is this is not to let Equifax off the hook, that they invested a lot of money in silver bullet boxes from FireEye but clearly never invested money on doing things like rate-limiting access to the databases. That something just trying to access 100 million records of the database should trigger an alarm in itself, and that apparently never happened. Yeah, that's interesting, and I I suspect that that happens more often than than one would like, uh, that... uh, uh, people have big budgets for cybersecurity. They spend money. They buy pretty sophisticated gear. But um, doing all of the disciplined, rather boring stuff that's necessary to uh, keep your patches up to date is a lot harder than, than most people think. Yeah. And um, in many cases, cybersecurity should pay for better testing infrastructure. So why do people worry about patches? because they can break things. If you have good testing infrastructure, you can very quickly check if the patch is going to break things and deploy it immediately. Likewise, it looks like Equifax largely outsourced to Oracle a lot of the open source software support for Apache struts. Yep. Apache had released the, the uh, vulnerability or released the patch a few days before. And this was so trivial to exploit. It's literally, hey, server, run this program for me. K, thanks. Um, so it became very easy for the Black Hat community to use. But um, Oracle waited a month before they had their patch version out. So in some ways, using these uh, companies that resell open source software make your problem a lot worse because there might be a public patch because it's open source software, but your vendor provider didn't give it to you. Oh, oh, that's the, the talk about a cascade of lawsuits. Uh, um, I'm sure Equifax is already looking to its remedies against Oracle. Yeah, and uh, unfortunately, there's probably the standard software license agreement that says uh, anything that goes wrong is not our fault. Yes, well, we'll see. You know, sooner or later, that uh, that's not going to work, but maybe it will work this time. Um, speaking of things that didn't work, Twitter came to the uh, to Capitol Hill and said, uh, "Oh, you wanted stuff about uh, Russia? Here's what we have about Russia." And uh, 
turned out what they had about Russia, I think, was basically what Facebook had told them about Russia. Uh, and uh, uh, now uh, the uh, uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee is saying, well, geez, Twitter, you didn't do actually anything uh, about the Russians. Uh, you just seem to have uh, waited for Facebook to tell you what the Russians are doing in, uh, in cyberspace. Um, yeah, and I think it comes down to Twitter has historically not wanted to solve the hard problems. Um, the problem of bots has been endemic on Twitter, and I think there's some negative uh, negative externalities for them if they solve the problem on their stock price because it would look like the number of users go down. Yeah, and they've got um, some. I think they list three or four hundred million users, and there's a real fear that. Uh, couple hundred of them might be bots or at least fakes. Yeah. And um, another factor is just generally in the Silicon Valley attitude, um, if you're hiring people, you're doing it wrong. There's a real attitude of you want to solve all your problems with code. And abusive behavior is one of those things. And bots and are just one form of it. There's also all the leaps. Um, yep. Um, and those are really hard to solve algorithmically. Yes. And it takes people. And, 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 and the people who've been doing this, you know, they're not used to exercising judgment and they've had, you know, they've, they started out saying, oh, Twitter, we're the, the free speech wing of the free speech party and we'll, we'll never take anything down. Uh, and they've flipped from that to taking stuff down uh, because it seems mean uh, or politically incorrect. Uh, uh, they just uh, they're, they're really having struggling to find a way to uh, uh, raise these um, uh, these questions in a fashion that most people would think were reasonable. Well, abuse on these online services is a problem and. As a private forum, if you want a viable long-term private forum, helping out the Nazis doesn't help your overall user base. And so, like, Reddit has actually done a remarkably effective job at um, tamping down some of the worst of the abuse, and it's actually helped their service a lot. But in order to tamp down abuse, you're going to need basically a fair number of people involved. You can't automate it away, and you can't outsource it to um, some underpaid group in the Philippines and expect it to be effective either. But that's a, that's and what the, so, that's what most companies are doing, right? That seems to be the yeah. model. Uh, yeah, and give, it's give not them some effective. basic standards uh, and set them loose on it. And it proves to be horribly ineffective, and it allows the company to say we're doing something, but in the end, it's not effective, and the problem is, is solving it right is a hard problem that also contrasts with the Silicon Valley business model of anytime we need to hire somebody, it's a failure. Anytime we need to hire an American, it's a big failure. Yep. Well, it'll be interesting to see whether there are <clears> – <throat> whether there's a push – uh, to establish greater attribution for people using social media, there's been some discussion about the Foreign Agent Registration Act and what type, if any, of obligations it imposes on people uh, active on social media who are who are foreign. 
Well, for, for foreign governments trying to influence uh, uh, elections, for example. That's and and one would think it would be important to know whether the uh, person tweeting is the president of Russia or the president of the United States. Uh, and the the Foreign Agent Registration Act um, may be may enter the fray here as. Uh, triggering some obligation. I find that really interesting because FARA was created, um, it was, was written and uh, adopted uh, because uh, the Nazis were influencing speech, you know, giving speeches, organizing uh, uh, op-eds and uh, buying newspapers, uh, all of those things uh, in an effort to influence public opinion here. Um, and so we are now in a world where the Russians and the Chinese uh, uh, and soon the Iranians and the North Koreans will be trying to influence uh, public opinion here and figuring out when we should allow that to happen and uh, what kinds of restraints we can put on that kind of speech uh, is a it's it's a hard issue but certainly one we ought to look at yeah and and who who has the obligation uh to make clear who it is who's who's speaking um, Nick? I, I think we're going to see more there have been only seven i think seven uh fara charges in the last 20 some odd years but i suspect we'll see that number grow yeah, I, I, uh, what's, what's attractive about FARA, if you're trying to get at this issue, is it's already been found constitutional. Because what it does is it doesn't ban foreign governments from speaking, uh, but it makes sure that if they speak, they, their, uh, role as foreign governments or foreign parties is advertised to the folks who are consuming it. And of course, just doing that would create some headaches for social media who've never had to worry about that before. And it's really hard to tell that one of the real features of a lot of social media is its pseudonymity, that you can create a pseudonym and it's long-lived, but it's not necessarily connected to your on- or your real-life identity. And well, yes and no, right? Uh, for Facebook, they've had a real name policy for a long time, and they, they, they'll compromise it, but basically, you're in there with your real name. Twitter, of course, uh, uh, you, unless they verify you, you, uh, you can be completely uh, made up, uh, and you can have 16 identities, and uh, that's good for their business, so they don't really police it much. Right, and it's... Uh but the problem is, is if you want to say um, crack down on FARA registrations, it means you actually have to know who the people are behind the particular accounts, and that's a hard problem. Right, and I think I've heard people say, you know, you don't have to advertise that who they are, they don't have to acknowledge who they are, but you have to have a way of figuring it out uh, as a compromise position, but still one that's pretty hard for uh, uh, the, for folks who have who want to have easy sign up uh, and registration. That you know, basically, they might have an IP address uh, and an email address, and both of those are not that hard to fake. Yeah. Or legit, really, that uh, a legit email address, a legit phone number, um, and a legit IP all originating in the U.S. is something that's easy to do. Yep. 
So speaking of social media in trouble, it's like uh, uh, this is going to be the theme of uh, uh, the year, I think. Uh, um, left and right both agreeing that they hate social media and mistrust them. Uh, um, the Justice Department has filed a uh, an attack on Google that really is uh, – Pulling no punches. Uh, essentially, what they're saying, uh, as I read this, Nick, is uh, they said uh, we uh, uh, Microsoft won their case in the Second Circuit, uh, saying that uh, if you have a warrant to get access to the content of communications, the only communications you can get access to are communications stored in the United States. And Google had filed a, an amicus saying, you know, we can't actually tell where our stuff is, uh, uh, but we agree with the, uh, Microsoft that basically we shouldn't have to produce foreign uh, stored data. Uh, but that position has really lost pretty much everywhere except the Second Circuit, and most importantly, it lost in the district that uh, uh, governs uh, Google and most of Silicon Valley uh, out in the Northern District of California. So um, the response to that, according to the filing that the government made by Google, is to say, you know, um, we like the Second Circuit opinion better. We think it ought to apply nationally. So we're just not going to comply with these other uh, orders until somebody equally prestigious, another circuit court, has told us we're wrong. Um, and um, the government accuses Google first of stalling for months on important uh, 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 criminal discovery and then of running a massive um, – engineering project to redesign their uh, storage system so that they can say with more certainty, I'm sorry, U.S. government, but we've discovered that that stuff is stored outside the United States and therefore we're not giving it to you. So they're basically saying, I know you have an order that says it doesn't matter where it is uh, and that I need to produce it, but I'm not going to produce it because I'm busy establishing that it's outside the United States uh, for uh, for purposes of my appeal, um, and the government's response uh, in their uh, uh, pleading is to say it's time for sanctions. Uh, we can't put anybody in jail, but we sure can find them, and uh, we'd like the court to get ready to uh, allow us to do discovery to find out just how much uh, the fine should be. Uh, kind of a, a, a surprisingly aggressive and outraged response on the part of the U.S. government. More minor than if I was in charge of the U.S. government case, because you, for you, my mind... <laughs> you would have come down harder on them. Yes, because basically this is Google letting loose with true weapons-grade chutzpah. So the Microsoft case was fairly simple. It was data in Ireland by an Irish citizen... And Microsoft said you should need an MLAT for it. And it's a case that you could make. Google, however, is saying, uh, we don't know where this data is. It's somewhere in the world. We aren't going to tell you where it is. Oh, and by the time you actually find out where it is and do an MLAT, it might be someplace else. Um, I suspect that Google is doing this not about search warrants, but about 702. 
that <laughs> if yeah. Google can get this logic adopted for 702, it means that they can basically localize data in country and basically block 702 requests. And tell, so that's and tell what customers I, that that's what they've done. Yeah. And that's what I think they're up to, that what they want to do is they want to exist in a world where if Google localizes the data in a given country, they only abide by that country's uh, data access laws, even though the actual access occurs in Palo Alto. Yeah. So that's the thing. Um, I've heard of stories where data requests from the Singapore subsidiary means you have to do an MLAT, but you still get the data from the U.S. side. Right. Um, and I think Google just is wanting to do that as a matter of policy. But it's interesting how much they apparently re-engineered their systems to do this, that Google's infrastructure was designed around the idea that all these computers all over the world shall be treated as a single entity. And so from Palo Alto, you could do a single query and get all the data associated with an account. But it seems like what they've been doing, at least if I believe the um, federal filing, is they did a massive engineering effort. So for only the purpose of complying with a warrant, then it actually cares about where the data is localized. And I find it quite quite amusingly weapons-grade chutzpah that that Google is basically saying, we are re-engineering our systems so that we don't know where the data is outside the U.S., and although we can get it, we won't get it for you or even tell you where it is. So I, much of the impetus for localization of that sort is the uh, new GDPR out of uh, uh, Europe, which says, you know, uh, we're not, we're, we're very skeptical about data exports because of uh, the uh, uh, U.S. intelligence programs and the like. Um, and if you violate our uh, Data protection rules. Um, we, we can assess you four percent of your global gross revenues as a fine. Uh, so the real nightmare from Google's point of view is the U.S. government files something saying we think that's the motivation, and therefore, if you want to make sure that uh, uh, you have appropriately uh, uh, put the um, fear of God and uh, the Northern District of California into Google. You ought to start with four percent of global gross revenue as a fine. Oh, that would be amusing. <laughs> but uh, I suspect the other reason why Google would care so much about the European data protection is Google really could just basically move out of Europe as a corporate entity and still keep getting all the revenue from Europe. Of course, they but could. that would disrupt their Irish sandwich. Ah, well, yes, and and the um, the. Uh, the EU has seen them coming and has said, um, you can pull the data offshore, but we're going to still regulate you. Uh, we're going to regulate you. Anybody, anywhere who uh, uh, has uh, uh, European data. So they they probably would not solve their data protection problems uh, that way. Okay, so here's a here's another another uh, problem for Jim Comey. Uh, well, it's sort of a problem for Jim Comey and sort of a problem for the U.S. government uh, related to 702. 
Um, Senators Wyden and Lee have written a letter to um, uh, the director of national intelligence saying, we had Jim Comey up here talking about 702 in May, and we asked him uh, what you could use as a justification for collecting information under 702. And he said, oh, counterterrorism, espionage, counterproliferation. And we thought it might include uh, things unrelated to national security threats like foreign intelligence uh, about, you know, diplomatic issues. Uh, so uh, uh, please, uh, uh, Mr. Director of National Intelligence, can you tell us whether Jim Comey was lying or uh, whether the statute uh, doesn't mean what it says? Uh, that seems to be what they're uh, uh, what they're asking for. My guess is Comey did get it wrong uh, and that uh, um, Wyden and Lee are hoping to do what one of the guests who was on here talking about 702, uh, 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 Liza uh was hoping to do, was to say, you shouldn't be able to gather any foreign intelligence. It has to be related to some kind of threat against the United States. That's what 702 should really be about. And it sounds to me as though these guys are laying a groundwork for um, – proposing that as an amendment to 702? Um, I'm inclined to agree, but I'd also note that Comey is not the person you ask for foreign intelligence. That's not his job. No, I think he, his job he, is he, counterintelligence. He, he, he listed all the things that he the, and the FBI care about. Uh, and, you know, he's not in charge of figuring out what the Chinese position is on sanctions on uh, uh, North Korea. Uh, or the French there. position on the Havana Club trademark dispute. Yeah, exactly. So I uh, he he just didn't know much about it. But my guess is that uh, Wyden and Lee are are going to try to turn this the fact that 702 has been enormously effective from a uh, um, uh, counterterrorism point of view on its head and say, okay, we agree that it's all it's all great for counter for counterterrorism. Let's limit it to that or other threats against the United States. Let's not use it to determine um, whether uh, a, a particular country's negotiating position on trade or on sanctions or something else uh, uh, might be subject to um, a modification if we lean on them hard enough, uh, uh, even though that's obviously an important part of what an intelligence agency would gather. Um, but the thing is, is this is something that needs to be publicly debated at least in my opinion, because there is a big cost associated with using 702 for larger diplomatic contexts. That 702 is good on it, have a nice day for terrorism, etc., um, cyber, stuff like that. But for diplomacy, it means the potential window of targets is so much greater and all these people can't use U.S. services as a result. And do we want to live in a world where U.S. services are at a significant competitive disadvantage um, compared with European or other services like that? And so it is important to debate, should 702 be used for um, the classic diplomatic spying? So if I you had seen, argue if, both ways. Yeah, I, I, you know, I look. The, every 
jurisdiction has its own set of disincentives for uh, a particular industries uh, and data protection and a general fear of, and loathing of failure in Europe uh, has made it almost impossible for them to build a tech sector. Right? Uh, and uh, I, I'm guessing that's a much bigger um, handicap than U.S. 702 has been. Uh, uh, otherwise, you know, we'd be looking at uh, uh, European email giants, uh, um, and we aren't. Uh, um, Deutsche Telekom tried to use the um, uh, 702 debates as a way of, you know, goosing their sales of cloud services. I don't see much sign that they've dented the market share of the big cloud providers. Uh, so I'm kind of skeptical about the argument, the, though I agree it's it, it's a fair point. And I think it's one that you don't want to necessarily count on because things do change in the tech industry. Google, I mean, uh, China has done an excellent job of making sure that Western tech companies are irrelevant in that marketplace. Right, and they now and now they're spreading to uh, uh, sell those products and services outside of China, and boy, if the United States is supposed to have a disadvantage because of the possibility that uh, it might spy on some people, uh, you'd think that uh, Chinese products would be non-starters. But the fact is that uh, uh, cheap be- uh, beats most of those fears. Any day, and uh, my guess is that the, uh, this will turn out to be, you know, really for for Europeans a choice between the possibility of American spying and the certainty of Chinese spying, depending on which technology they buy. Yep. Okay. Well, that takes us to CFIUS for sure, because Chinese spying is a big um, uh, issue today in CFIUS, uh, and um, and t- so we're taking a look in the rearview mirror, though, because CFIUS produces annual reports on a more or less eighteen to twenty-four month delay, uh, and so uh, we can now get a much clearer sense of what CFIUS was like in the waning uh, years of the Obama administration specifically 2015. Um, uh, they put out a report. It has a bunch of statistics. Uh, uh, Stephen, what uh, are the highlights? So this is a snapshot, as you say, of, um, uh, from 2015. This was delayed. The report is delayed a little bit longer than usual. Um, uh, they, they try to get them out typically a, a year uh, plus. Uh, this was closer to two years afterward. There were 104. Why, why, why should the report move any faster than their approval of transactions? <laughs> right. For for 2015, there were 100. This is really a snapshot that looks much like the last uh, six or seven years. So this is uh, illustrative of what it was like uh, before the Trump administration. There were 143 cases filed against CFIUS reviews foreign investments in U.S. companies uh, for national security implications. 143, things had varied in the last six or seven years between 90 and 180 cases uh, with a general upward trend. 66 of those cases went the full period, which is uh, 75 days rather than 30 days. Or that it is, seemed like a lot then. <laughs> right. It seemed like a lot then. Uh, but it was consistent. Cepheus in this, the last six and seven, eight years had been running 30 to 50 percent of cases going into this longer uh, investigation period. 
11 of the cases, uh, 11 of the 143 were cleared with mitigation measures, that is conditions on the deal, and only three didn't clear. So that's, uh, again, consistent with uh, generally sort of the last uh, six, seven, eight years of CFIUS, a very methodical, uh, relatively uh, cumbersome process, but one that in the end cleared almost all of the deals. 29 of the cases that were filed in 2015 were China cases. Again, that's consistent with the general trajectory of China being uh, one of the more significant investors in recent years running through this process. So call this the Bush-Obama consensus, Cepheus. That's that's right. Uh, of course, part of the reason for the delay in this report is a reshuffling. You have uh, political appointees who hadn't yet been appointed. Uh, that's slowly, very slowly being mitigated with the uh, appointment and confirmation of new CFIUS officials. Just last week, uh, Heath Tarbert was confirmed as uh, Assistant Secretary of Treasury for International Markets and Development. That's a, an important appointee uh, for CFIUS. But this, this era, the Trump era, really does look like it's going to be a, a very different era. We had, we, we had another transaction dinged, didn't we? That's right. Just last week, um, on the heels of the uh, President Trump blocking the the uh, Lattice Semiconductor deal, uh, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, um, just but just last week, Cepheus uh, said no to a uh, China-led consortium that sought to invest in the Dutch map, mapping company here, uh, and this is notable because. One, uh, people think of CFIUS as a process for reviewing investments in U.S. companies, but if the foreign company has U.S. operations, that may subject it to CFIUS jurisdiction. Uh, So it was notable in that respect. This was a Dutch company that was the target. And it was also notable that there were, it was only a 10% uh, investment stake that this consortium was see- seeking to make. It's a consortium made up of some large Chinese companies and a Singapore sovereign wealth fund. Uh, so, so my memory is that here was the provider of map services to people who wouldn't use Google Maps. Uh, that it, there, are, there are not a lot. You know, it's very labor intensive to build up maps, uh, uh, and here had built up the maps. It's been owned by several companies, as I remember. Um, and those who were afraid of Google insisted on buying here. So there's a lot of penetration, a lot of use in the United States. Maybe that was what the, um, the CFIUS was worried about. That, and I think it uh, is consistent with the general concern about data, almost any data, uh, concerning U.S. persons or U.S. institutions or perhaps U.S. topography uh, being a concern to Cepheus. It's it, and this is further, you know, to the Chinese investment uh, issues that Cepheus has been worried about. Though, as we've discussed in previous uh, previous podcasts, it's not only Chinese investors that are running into pretty significant Cepheus issues. Virtually any foreign investor now has to think very seriously about whether they have CFIUS issues. Wow. Okay. Uh, and the last topic I wanted to talk about uh, uh, is the uh, uh, the vulnerabilities process. You had a, a musing on uh, 
uh, what we can learn from shadow brokers or similar uh, uh, disclosures uh, uh, and the the equities at work here, which are not just uh, is this good for U.S. security or is this as good for uh, uh, U.S. intelligence? Uh, do you want to uh, give us a, a quick tour of what you were uh, saying in your lawfare piece? Thank you very much. Well, first of all, we can all agree that disclosing a vulnerability to the vendor actually only helps improve our security if somebody else also knows about it. So here's the hard question. This, this would be what basically the, the, this is the Nobus. Uh, if, if nobody but us knows about it, uh, us being uh, U.S. intelligence, uh, there's no harm to anybody's security, or at least uh, from the point of view of the United States government. Anybody's security that I actively care about. If you're a target of the NSA, I don't really care about your security. (laughs) So the question is, though, what about the harder cases where the NSA does know that an adversary is aware of a vulnerability, either because the NSA has seen it being used or because it was stolen from the NSA and the NSA knew it was stolen or because the NSA has penetrated the adversary's infrastructure. And then the problem is much, much harder. So like in the case of shadow brokers, we don't know if the NSA did or did not know what the shadow brokers stole. Right. But they clearly did not disclose to Microsoft what was stolen until January when the shadow brokers actually publicly revealed what they stole to the NSA. And then when the shadow brokers revealed it, then the NSA was clear there was no... What they they disclosed, I thought, was a bunch of code names, not necessarily the actual exploits, right? So uh, at that point, NSA knows uh, or has a pretty good idea that these particular tools that it uses are at risk. Now, they might think there's there's some bluffing going on and that uh, uh, the, the shadow brokers know the names but not the details. Um, but, boy, that's a big bet. Yeah, and not only that, but the uh, it wasn't just names, but it was versions, too. Mm-hmm. So it was easy for the NSA to say this was the pack at this time that was stolen um, Well, and when did, in January. When did Microsoft patch it? It was in March, wasn't it? Uh, Microsoft was notified almost immediately by the NSA, and it actually delayed February's Patch Tuesday. Mm-hmm that the NSA was very much, you must fix these immediately, and it was considered so urgent within Microsoft that they actually delayed Patch Tuesday to get that into the February package of stuff. Um, So it was clearly um, a red alert notification system. Well, and I've always suspected that as soon as the patch came out, Assuming it was the Russians that are behind shadow brokers, which I do assume, uh, uh, then the shadow, bro- the, the Russians did their own calculus. They said, well, this has been a great tool and we've used it and, uh, you know, we're very fond of it. Uh, but we decided that the uh, opportunity to embarrass NSA and uh, cause pain for them in, in public opinion uh, was worth disclosing it. Now that it's been patched, we're not going to be able to use it. So we might as well release the whole thing. Yes, I think there was definitely some of that going on. But the interesting question is, 
if the NSA knew about the theft before January, they did not act on it. So their equities calculation was indeed, let's let the Russians continue to use this as well because it's too valuable to us. So my guess is if I were the NSA and in charge of defending this policy. It's a really cool tool, so you don't want to give it up uh, too soon. I'd be I'd be watching for Russian use of it. I'd be because there are a bunch of networks that we care about and they care about, uh, and I'd be in there saying any sign that they're using Eternal Blue here, because until we know they're at, they've actually found a way to utilize it, uh, um, maybe we shouldn't give up this really great uh, opportunity. Except part of the problem is is this is not the kind of tool you see where you tend to have most visibility. Mm. So um, this tool is something you use for lateral movements inside a targeted institution. So you really have it's to be in. It's not how you get in the first place. Yep. Yeah, you already have to be in. And in general, internal visibility is a lot less than visibility at the border. So you'd actually have to see it being used in the internal network for you to go oblique. Yeah. And the problem is, is that's going to be a really hard thing to do, especially since um, in doing these attacks, you don't actually necessarily have to load the tools onto the remote system. You're, you can set up a relay channel. So as long as that remote system can run a connection to the internet to a system you control without being interrupted you don't actually need to move the tools into the target network so and this, so you'd actually this this is relevant it seems to me uh uh to the CIA as well as as Vault 7 tools continue to be rolled out uh, uh, as, and as they think about how those tools might be used uh, um, a, and as the government as a whole evaluates what the risk of uh, uh, compromise is. Yes, and it's a hard, hard problem that, that you can argue both decisions were right. You can also argue that that they were wrong. And this is a so much more interesting question for debate than the standard VEP questions, because the standard VEP question all centers around this hypothetical that suppose an adversary discovers a exploit. This is the much more interesting question, because it's what happens when you know the adversary has an exploit. What do you do now? Is the tactical win from disclosing to the vendor so that it gets patched exceeded by the potential risk of compromise of whatever source and method you use to find that some adversary is using the vulnerability? It's hard. Well, plus... And therefore, much more interesting. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, and you also have to, you know, for the really good stuff, you have to say, and we know that the patches aren't going to happen in time. So as soon as we release the um, 
the fix. Uh, there are going to be people at risk for a period of time, maybe a lot of people, and that compromise is going to fall on us, not on the people who are have been compromising them or the foreign governments that have stolen the tools. So, uh, I think you kind of have to say that's that's a loss we're going to get sooner or later, and so we just have to suck it up. But it's a big loss. That, that that's in, in some respects the Equifax problem. And it's certainly, yeah, but, you know, Maersk and uh, um, uh, the WannaCry and NotPetya victims are also victims of an inability to patch. Well, NotPetya is not really about patching. NotPetya was largely about how Windows does internal movement. Okay, you could enough. actually remove the uh, eternal blue stuff. And not Petya would still probably do the same amount of damage. Okay, you're right. Um, it was it was presented as a as a uh, an eternal blue problem uh, because that was the easiest story for journalists to write. But I, I agree with you that is not the main problem with uh, yeah. Uh, and why the journalists haven't written that? Hey, this is now almost certainly Russia executing sanctions on anybody doing business in Ukraine. Why that isn't a bigger topic of discussion, I don't know, because Russia got away with that. Yeah, you're right. And and that's two companies each reported $300 million in losses because of that. Uh, that's, that those, those are the biggest losses I've ever heard from a, uh, a cyber attack, uh, um, and both of them because they were doing business with uh, Ukraine and needed to download Ukrainian uh, tax software. Yep. Okay. Uh, Nick, thanks very much. It's been a terrific uh, uh, discussion. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for elucidating Cepheus uh, for us uh, t- uh, to the extent that that is possible. Uh, this has been Episode 181 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, if you suggest a guest interviewee and they end up on the show, we'll send you a highly coveted Steptoe Cyber Law podcast mug. Uh, uh, send those suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Coming up, we've got Richard Danzig, former Secretary of the Navy and a really uh, deep thinker on technology and national security. Uh, uh, Martin Mikos, the CEO, CEO of HackerOne, will talk about uh, uh, bug bounties and how to make them work. Uh, Mike Sulmeyer, um, uh, formerly uh, with Steptoe, now of the uh, Belfer Center. Uh, long ago, he was at Steptoe. Uh, a, a, and uh, uh, we'll be talking about uh, his recent uh, meetings with people to talk about uh, the extent to which hacking back already occurs. Uh, and then mark your calendars for November 7. You can come in and see us in person. Uh, I'm not sure that's really an incentive, but uh, there it is. Uh, we're going to have a uh, afternoon uh, live taping of our episode on election cybersecurity here in DuPont Circle. Uh, so uh, register on the events page uh, at uh, the Stepto.com website if you want to make sure you'll have uh, uh, a seat. Uh, and we hope you'll join us then and for all our other episodes as we again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.